to be seated and children you are dismissed to children's ministry and just as a reminder as we've been doing over the last few weeks if you do find benefit in following along with the sermon outline you can do that uh, by by accessing the sermon outline via this code and uh, today, we, as I mentioned during the call to worship, we're going to talk about this idea of exhorting and equipping parents and patriarchs and matriarchs to embrace their high calling, and we'll explain all of that as we move on. Now, I want to walk you through some of my favorite artwork this morning. Um, Grace, do you have the next slide? With Okay. So this is, you're going to see three paintings from, from Norman Rockwell. And uh, he fell completely out of favor in the art world when the art world became sort of postmodern, rootless Voldemort types, right? So, so uh, uh, he's not in favor anymore because now art has to be subversive and tear things down in order for it to be good. And uh, this is too sentimental. But of course, all art is sentimental because it's just coloring. But anyway, uh, this, art, this art is remarkable both in its skill and also... Truth be told, this is as subversive as it gets today, right? So by their own Voldemortian anti-truth, anti-beauty, uh, postmodern standards, this should be on all of the cool people's walls because it is one of the most subversive things you can see right now. But there's something about his art. There's a number of things I'd love to spend hours talking to you about, but can you go to the, back to the first painting? There's something about his art that he captures really especially well, and I think this is one of the reasons, beyond his actual skill, that caused him to be so popular, especially in the 1950s. He did this thing with generations in his paintings, and you can pick up on it over and over and over again as you look at his paintings. He has this way of communicating well, the fancy word for it is pedagogy. He has this way of communicating, bringing someone up from a child to an adult. And he has this way of showing the generations interacting with one another. Let's look at the next painting. Um, uh, no, that's not the one I want, the other one. There we go, thank you. Uh, this is, I think, one of his most famous paintings. It's called Saying Grace. It's very common as a child in the 70s to see this on people's Walls. Uh, it was a very popular painting in the 70s. It should be popular again. Uh, ironically, if I'm not mistaken, George Lucas actually owns this painting. Uh, but you've got here both the issues of faith, but you've also got this very obvious generational thing going on here. That theme of one generation to the next is very common in Rockwell's paintings. If you look at the background of that painting, you'll see an industrial scene. This is a hard place. And these are hard people in this diner. And the diner is so crowded that they have to share a table. Like this, They don't get their own table. But you can see, for instance, the young boy's hat is on his grandmother's sewing bag there, right beneath the grandmother next to her umbrella, because that's what boys do. They take their hats off when they pray. But her hat is on because... So there's all of this encoding going on in this. And then you've got these two young men and they're not painted out to be derelicts. They're, they're obviously on the rougher side. But they're just observing this sacred moment in this rough diner, looks like to me somewhere on the East Coast, which was where Rockwell was from. And then the next one is one of my favorites, and it's called um, Cutting Family, or not Cutting, Leaving Family Ties or something like that. Grace, if you can find that one. Uh, and I'll go back to there. This one is 
I think, I mean, it's just, it's just deeply profound. You've got this young boy, and he's on his way to college. You can see his case there, and it says State U, you know, generic. And he's got this white suit on that's just ready to be stained with disappointment and hardship. It's no joke. And you can see in his face, see, they're at a train station. You can tell this is out west, too. Uh, the background, there's the desert, and then the train station's so rural and disconnected that they can just pull their car right up to the rail, and the train's going to stop for them there. So it's a very rural setting, and this is a hard man. He's got his cowboy hat. He's holding his son's fancy hat above his cowboy hat, and that's the imagery of one generation to the next, and the dad's taking care of both hats. Dad's also got a match in his hand and a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. Look at that man. He, he is that man's father, but he looks like that man's grandfather. Why? Because he's sacrificed his life to get this kid down the road on this train, right? And it's sort of this question of, well, how will that go? Is the life down the road on the train better than the life he's leaving? I mean, it certainly looks like it will be an easier life, but how will this go? And so that's one of the things going on with Rockwell that I think we're going to see this artists become better, uh, more popular again as we continue our slow crawl into darkness as a culture. This is good, true, and beautiful. And one of the basic things going on in Rockwell that attracts people is that this idea of generational transfer is actually extremely um, dicey. It's extremely tentative. If you read the Bible well, you will see that over and over and over again. The idea is clear. We pass truth down. We pass God's word down from generation to generation. And that's the idea, and that's the aim, and that's the goal. But you would be foolish to think that that isn't layup. It is not a layup. It is exceedingly questionable. It's tentative. And it's tentative among many reasons because... What human beings do in their nature is pass down sin. And that's actually what Greg talked about last week. By our nature, we're not passing down righteousness. We're passing down sin. So that's one issue. And the other, the other issues that's extremely pronounced in this whole question is that you need two parties to participate in order for this to work. You need the son to do what his dad says. And you need the dad to tell his son what to do. And both of those are by no means obvious. Now, so that's what we're going to talk about today, but I don't want you to get overly hung up. If you're a parent of a young child, like you just sit in the, like this sermon is easy for you. This is a simple, straight application for you. But if you are not a parent of a young child, then you need to use your, hopefully, more developed, more mature imagination and brain to understand that this is definitely for you. Because parenthood is not, in the Bible, ever restricted to a literal biological thing. We call God our Father. And so when we talk about parenting, we also mean something that might be more useful to some of us. That's just terms of thinking in terms of patriarchs and matriarchs. And that is very important in the Bible. You know, we've got these Rockwell paintings, but we've also got this Rockwell passage, the heart of this passage in Proverbs, Proverbs 4, 3 through 4. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight, for I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. 
When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments and live. And that's as Rockwell as it gets in the Bible. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said, let your heart hold fast my words and keep my commands and live. And so we're going to be talking about how to do that and why it should be done, but it is certainly not restricted to people with kids in the home. As I'll show you, this is simply the way of life for all Christians, and this is why the title of the message is, By Now You Should Be Teachers. It's a quote from the book of Hebrews, where the writer of Hebrews is quite frustrated with a number of people who he thinks have been walking in the gospel long enough to have moved beyond the elementary principles and actually started giving things away. He thinks that by then they should be teachers. And I would submit to you as we work through, and you'll see this, that one of the most depressing things in the world that we can see is someone who should be giving God's truth away but keeps hoarding it for themselves. And I will just call it what it is, spiritual obesity, spiritual gluttony. Back in the hood where I lived, it was, we didn't, you, didn't call, uh, you didn't call it diabetes, you called it sugar beeties. Some of y'all have the scripture beaties. You just don't have an appropriate category for your role as a spiritual leader in the life of the church. You don't, you should be, you should see yourself as a patriarch and you are treating yourself not like a patriarch. You should see yourself as a matriarch and that is not how you are acting. And so this is an invitation to all of us to get really sober about this beautiful thing that God has presented before us, this opportunity to lead others, future generations, into God's truth. This is God's will for us. By now, we should be teachers, many of us. By now, we should be teachers. Or as Paul says in Romans 15, 14, I am confident, he says to that congregation, that you yourself are filled with all goodness and able to counsel one another. You know, last week we read our membership covenant, and one of the paragraphs we read was, I will be vigilant to guard the welfare and joy of my brothers and sisters, admonishing anyone whose practice of sin requires it. And I will humbly receive admonishment from my brothers and sisters when my sin requires it. I wonder how many of you, when you read that, felt like you have been faithful to that part of the covenant for an extended period of time during your membership at this church or simply just throughout your Christian life. I wonder how often, I wonder if anyone, upon reading that, thought, I don't know that I've done that well. I don't know that I have been vigilant to guard the welfare and joy of my brothers and sisters and admonish anyone whose practice of sin requires it. I wonder if anyone thought maybe that's an area that I have perhaps grown lax in. Well, that's sort of what's at work in our text. Because what we see in our text is this importance of passing on information according to the, I guess you could say, structures that God has created in the world, and one of those basic structures is, is age, from older to younger. And this text is full of information about how to do this well. 
I'll let some of the cat out of the bag right now. This father in question is David. Our best understanding of this particular proverb is that it was written by Solomon. And so when Solomon is describing being with his father and receiving commands from his father, our best understanding should be that he is making reference to the king of Israel, so to speak, the one that everyone would have thought of, and that is David. And before we go any further, I think it'd be good to lodge in your mind just this clarity on David. He was a bad father. And he was a bad father not because he was evil or bossy or authoritarian. He was a bad father because he was passive. And there's one exception to his passivity, and it's this son named Solomon, who this text records he was faithful. And by the way, other scriptures as well record he was faithful to teach and raise up. And so we're going to ask questions about how did he get it right this time and not the other times, and what does getting it right look like, and so on and so forth. And one of the things I think we need to talk about very clearly is, is that one of the things you see in this passage is a kind of authority, a kind of unapologetic sincerity that simply says, do what I say. There is an exercise of authority in the way that this father is talking to his son that I think is very important to grasp. You know, very often, I think this is one of those areas, if you were to ask someone, what, how does a Christian speak? I think very often they would say, gently or lovingly. Of course, all of that is true. But you know, very often, the, the call in Scripture related to communication is to speak with authority. Say it like you really believe it, Right? And, and this is something that comes through even in the ministry of Jesus. We see in Matthew 7, 29, that the crowds marveled because Jesus spoke as one who had authority, not as the scribes do. So uh, one of the things we should be asking as we talk about transferring truth from generation to generation is, are we more like Jesus or more like the scribes in our communication of biblical truth? This idea of speaking with authority is completely embedded in our passage. It is, there's, there's no questions. Have you noticed that over time, people have begun to sort of have a, an affectation in their voice where when they speak, everything sounds like a question? At the risk of being the codger, get off my lawn guy, that seems to line up really well with our whole approach to truth. A complete lack of certainty, a complete lack of authority, a complete lack of belief that the word is simply the word. This is simply what God wants. And to be honest, a complete lack of sincerity. We have replaced the simple belief in God's word with a sense of cleverness, that we can say it better. We can say it more gently, more persuasively, at a better time, with a better tone. And Paul says, when I came to you, did not come with all the pretense, with all the rhetorical skill. I, I tied my rhetorical hands behind my back, and I just spoke simply with sincerity. Because I didn't want you to come to faith in rhetorical powers or cleverness. I wanted you to come to faith in God. This simplicity of authority, this idea of this is simply what the word says, is fundamental to godly communication. In the book of Titus, Paul tells Titus what to do. 
And what he tells Titus to do is to tell other people what to do. Listen, this is in chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. And then Paul says to Titus, declare these things exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Now, here's, here's a simple question as patriarchs and matriarchs and parents. Do you think that the apostles and that the pastors presented in the scriptures are sources of example for you, or do you think you have some completely novel, separate way of communicating to people? Of course, you, you follow the example of the leaders placed in God's word. If this is how Titus speaks, then this is how you speak. Paul told Titus to tell older women, speaking of matriarchs, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God might not be reviled. As the majority of conversations you have, older women with younger women, aimed first and foremost that the word of God might not be reviled. Probably not. Probably the majority of those concerns are that you might not be reviled. Like, or that, that that person might not feel reviled. The sense of, I want God's word, I want God's fame to be known. I will teach with clarity and sincerity of heart, trusting that the word says what it means. That's what we talk about when we talk about authority. You know, this is a really interesting question as we get to fathers. In Ephesians 6, 4, we're told the following. We're told to do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And as you know, I grew up in the church, and I've been paying attention for quite some time, not only to, to my teaching, but to others and tried to learn from others. And there's this odd phenomenon related to this verse. This verse is almost always presented as follows. Teach your kids to love the Lord, but don't be too hard on them or they'll be provoked. That's, that's how that verse is typically communicated. That's not in this verse. That's not what this verse says. Friends, I would invite you to take my atheist tour my, all of my atheist friends, I'd like you to just, let's, let's just, and let's find your atheist friends, and let's just, let's find all the people who are really angry with God. You are not going to find massive amounts of examples of fathers who were too hard on their kids. You're going to find massive numbers of examples of fathers who were passive. Just straight up, what this verse can mean, just as much as anything else it can mean is, is that you being passive and not raising your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord can provoke them to wrath. You being absent as a spiritual leader could be the thing that provokes your children to wrath. And I would just tell you personally, I see that. I see that over and over again. Pastorally, I see that over and over again. And I'll just tell you that even in the example of the scriptures themselves, even specifically related to David, when David has had a steady 
weighty hand on instruction, we see someone not provoked to wrath. And the, the more he lets up in his leadership, the more we see his children becoming wrathful. Why would we, just as a quick example or a quick question, why would we get this verse so wrong? Why would we think that this is about hitting this sweet spot of leadership, of this Goldilocks zone of neither being too hard or too soft? Because, and I will be clear, my generation and generation before have massive problems with authority. And everything is seen through that lens. There is no simple, truth-believing declaration of this is true, let's obey. It is a constant weight on the leader to be so skilled, so, so, uniquely, so uniquely clever as to avoid any kind of bad reaction from those that listen. It's like, that's not how the Bible teaches us to lead. Bible teaches us to lead with sincerity, being open and clear and truthful. And this, this authority is just obvious in the text. I don't hear any question marks in this. Let me read it to you to see if you hear any question marks. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive, that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one on the side of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commands, commandments, and live. That just seems extremely clear to me. There's no anger there, but there's also total authority and confidence. This is what you should do. There's no cleverness there. It's simply, this is what God wants. Now, where does this authority flow from? We can trace, because, because in God's beautiful providence, he has caused us to have this verse about the one time David got it right. We have all sorts of data to glean as a consequence. For instance, we can say for certain that one source of authority flows from what we might say a mostly successful assimilation of God's word. A mostly successful assimilation of God's word. Hebrews 13, 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. One place authority comes from is to be able to say, as for me, so far as I can see, I have attempted to obey God's word. And this is certainly coming through as David is speaking to young Solomon. I have tried to assimilate God's word. You know, a lot of pastors, I just got back from the pastor's conference, and a lot of pastors these days are feeling like Santa Claus. They're old, fat, and nobody believes in them. It's like, that's probably a mistake Consider the outcome of their lives. It's probably a mistake to discount them. Consider the outcome of their lives. That's what Hebrews 13 says. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, you imitate me as I imitate Christ. So there's this authority that simply I have 
obeyed Christ. There's an authority that is simply, I have assimilated God's word. And this authority comes through in our text in the use of possessive terminology. Let me read it to you again. Listen to the possessives. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me, here's, here's what I'd like you to pay attention. He taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments and live. So the, the, uh, the slow thinking, suspicious individual would be like, well, he's just, he's not telling He's not telling Solomon to trust the Bible. He's telling Solomon to trust his opinions. That's not what's happening here. David is not saying, I've come up with a whole bunch of new ideas, and I'm going to call them my words and my commandments. So what's going on here? Why the use that? Why, why not say, keep God's word, keep God's commandments, and live? So this is not David making stuff up, and this is also not David quoting exact scripture. What is going on here for him to say it this way? Keep my commandments and live? What's going on here is, is that the word of God has been so assimilated and engrafted into David's life that he can say my words and mean God's words. That's, what he, that's what's happening here. He owns them. He has owned them. He successfully owned them for a very long time. God's words are his words. He has been built into God's word. He has, he has chosen them. He, is, he says in Psalms, uh, Psalm 119, he has hidden them in his heart. He meditates on them day and night. God's words, his words, the distinction is, is slowly going away. He is simply a man who has owned God's word. And so one, where does authority come from? Authority comes from by saying, by the, David was no legalist and he was certainly no braggadocious fellow. He was not arrogant. He was a humble man. And he would say, how was it that I was able to obey his words? Like, Grace, God's, God's care and kindness to me. But nonetheless, one place authority comes from is to be able to say, I, I have obeyed. And there's a second source that authority comes from, and that is a visceral sense of one's own sinfulness. So one place authority comes from is to say, I have obeyed. And another place authority comes from is, I have occasionally disobeyed. It was terrible. This is what I meant in my prayer. I'm highly concerned that over time we say grace and forgiveness and sin. We have no specific sins in mind and therefore have no specific grace in mind. It is merely an abstraction. It is religious language we use. We ourselves are not currently aware of significant sins that need to be pardoned. We ourselves are not currently aware of the significant grace that has been given to us to pardon those sins. And so where does the authority come from to speak with authority? It comes on the one hand from saying, I, I believe God's word and I've obeyed it. And then there's another piece of the authority and that is, and sometimes I haven't. And oh my goodness, how difficult, how terrible, how much I've needed grace. At the beginning of this, if I said, hey, I, I think if, if you're my age or older, you need to be a patriarch or matriarch, sorry, no, no exceptions. You might have been tempted to think, I, I have too many sins. 
you're just the gal or guy I'm looking for. You're just the gal or guy God is looking for. Let me explain what's, the, what's going on in this text. It's pretty remarkable. Why did David, who is on balance throughout all of his other parenting scenes we see in the Bible, a very passive parent, why did he do what he did with Solomon that Solomon describes here? How many of you know who Solomon's mother was? It was Bathsheba. And so every time David would look at Solomon, he would see his mom and his sin and a scandal that resulted in the death of Solomon's older brother as an infant. David's sin, in case you're not aware, is that he was guilty of adultery with Bathsheba, fraud, defrauding her husband, and eventually having him murdered. And when Solomon says in our verse, I was in the side of my, or the only child in the side of my mother, it's not because he was the firstborn child. He is the secondborn child. The firstborn child never got a name. He was born and was killed as an act of God's discipline upon David. And so this is a very unique moment in time because we also know that eventually Solomon, or that, uh, that, that David and Bathsheba would have more kids. And so this is a very unique moment in time in the life of David, and we know exactly what's going on in the life of David right now. He is nursing uh, the wounds sustained from the most, I think, the most serious season of sin in his entire life. And my presupposition, my connection I'm making, and I think I can prove it with other passages, is simply this. That fresh awareness of the sinfulness of sin is the other source of real authority in communicating spiritual truth. The one is a sense of, I have, by God's grace, walked before him in fear and obedience. And that's where one place of authority comes from. But if that's all you have, you are not an authoritative person. You're not seeing the other piece that is true for all of us except for Christ, and that is, I have also been in my share of ditches, and they are just awful. Some of you might not be familiar with Psalm 51, and David is writing Psalm 51 around this period of time. Uh, nah, that's probably not true. Uh, but probably before Solomon's born. And listen to his brokenheartedness over his sin. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. And what I want to suggest is that if you don't know that backstory, you don't hear Proverbs 4.4 in the proper tone. Proverbs 4.4 is David saying, keep my commandments and live. Where does authority come from? As matriarchs and patriarchs and parents, where does our authority come from? It comes from two places. One, I have and am seeking to obey God's word. Two, I've really made a mess of things a time or two. When you can see both of those, you should be 
parent, a patriarch, a matriarch. This is when it is time. When you can speak out of both of those categories, you should be a teacher. You should be transmitting God's truth to the next generation, and you should do it with the kind of authority you see coming from Christ and from Paul and from Titus and so on and so forth. This necessity of actually seeing your own sin, it doesn't have to be a sin you committed yesterday. And I'm going to show you why that is in a moment. And, but it has to be clear to you. It has to be clear, viscerally clear, not abstract, viscerally clear. And let me show you what I'm seeing in Scripture. So Psalm 51 starts out. David looks like he is basically just in pure despair, which is not uncommon for David's Psalms to begin with. And then there's got to be some pivot out of this just wallowing into productivity. Like what, are, what is going to happen as a consequence of this? And this is a common theme in David's Psalms. He pivots into something useful and productive. And so at the beginning, as I read, he is just so consumed with his guilt, with the darkness, and how quickly it came upon him, by the way. This is why you can speak with authority to people. You say, don't get off the path. Because before you know it, you, there are no rumble strips on this one. You'll just go from fine to cliff. David's processing all of this, and then toward the middle to end of the psalm, he cries out to the Lord, beginning in verse 9, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast, not away, cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Why? He says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with, me with a willing spirit. What's the thing that happens when someone is that in touch with their own wickedness? Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. This is, this is what happens when you speak out of the authority. I call it the burned hand. What, imagine if you could, imagine if you could like just, if, if the proof of your own stupidity and sinfulness was just like the stove was hot, uh, you, by the way, let's make you 40, okay? You're 40 years old. People kept telling you the stove's hot, and you just didn't believe them, and <laughs> you touched the stove. And so you have scars on your hand, you know, the, the, the electric kind, uh, right? Imagine being able to say to anyone questioning stove hotness or, or the capacity of humans to be stupid, imagine just being able to say, look, this is, this is, how, this is what leadership is. Leadership is... Almost, I would say this, like, it's the blessed hand. Look, I've, I've walked with God, and look, he's filled my life full of goodness, and I'm so grateful for that. And then to say, also, sometimes I haven't. And if you can, if you can live there, you're, you, you need to be a leader. You need to be a matriarch. You need to be a patriarch. You need to be a parent. This is, if you can do these two things, this is it. This is all we have as human beings. This is how we transmit good news of God into the next generation with a blessed hand and a burnt hand. And Paul, I think you guys are with me, but just, just really quickly, this same pattern shows up in Paul. We know Paul's saying, 
uh, that he is the chief of sinners. Listen, he says, this saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, but I receive mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and amen. And then what does Paul do next? After saying, I'm the chief of sinners, here's my burnt hand. He says, Timothy, here's what I want you to do. Where does his authority come from? It comes from these two things. And he immediately pivots and he says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Among them are Hymaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not how to blaspheme. And so this blessed hand, burnt hand method of leadership is, is gospel leadership. And I believe that leadership has been mostly manipulative in, Christ, in the church for most of your Likely to be for most of us, most of our experience has been with leaders who have been far less sincere, far less open, far less frank, and far more manipulative. And so you hear someone just say, do it, and here's two reasons why. And it feels off-putting. It's not. It's, it's, it, it's, it's the way. It's with open and sincere frankness and belief in God's word. And yes, it is far easier to think of a bunch of manipulative ways to communicate things. But then one day we die and we stand before God and he's like, why didn't you just trust me? My word is living and active. All right, so let's talk about just some general application as we sweep up sort of other pieces of this text. There's this phrase I used earlier, it's called pedagogy. It's just a sort, of, sort of like a, the, a, a theory of uh, education. Some of you are teachers and I know you know this phrase. And I think the one thing I would want you all to know, especially parents, is that the Bible has a theory of education. So when you enroll your kids in another school, just understand the Bible has already provided a theory of education. If you are enrolling them in a school where there is an alternative theory of education happening, you've got issues. And there are people that can talk more intelligently about this than me. But this is something you should be aware of. And there are some factors in the biblical pedagogy, and one of them is repetition. What you'll see over and over again is like, how do I transmit truth? The thing I want you to hear above everything else is with the authority of the blessed hand and the authority of the burnt hand. But now we get into some more details, and one of them is say it a lot, over and over and over and over again. And you can just read this proverb and see the repetition. The second one is what I might call receptivity, and that is to begin at an early age by tracing the timeline that we've done already, we can see how old Solomon was, and the answer is he was really young. And then we can say continue into adulthood. Uh, what David did for Solomon his whole life, not simply in his childhood, but even as a young man, was to give him frank, direct counsel to obey God and trust him. And so our kids don't age out of receiving frank, direct counsel to obey God. Um, and the final thing is uh, related to just pedagogy is what we would call the good, the true, and the beautiful. Look at this passage and understand this is good, this is true, this is beautiful. Because there will be times when you think this is authoritative, this is mean, this is so on and so forth, and don't believe it. Without getting all to, into all of it now, postmodernism has, driven, has been driven primarily by one thing they call a problem, and that's called the problem of reproduction. It's within Marxist philosophy, and it's this problem 
they have over and over again, and that is that faithful parents tend to produce faithful children. And so they have been spinning for decades efforts to make you feel guilty about doing this God's way. And so this is one of those moments where I just want to just hit pause and say, if you're engaged in biblical pedagogy, if you're engaged in this Rockwellism type stuff, praise God, don't let the little little goblins of postmodernism, of Rousseau and Marx, whisper in your ears and get you to doubt yourself. Nope, you're doing it the right way. God will bless you. Have faith in God's word and tell them to shut up. You are not more clever than God. Do it God's way. And now I want to talk about motivations. First of all, the, the, one, of the, one of the obvious motivations is love. And you see it throughout the passage. David wants the best for his son, and Solomon wants the best for his son. And so he says, keep my commandments and live. And he says in verse 8, if you, if you prize wisdom highly, she will exalt you, and she will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. It's clear that the motivation here is, I just want you to do well. I just, I just want you to live. I just want you to live well. And, and, and it would have been highly tempting, for instance, for Solomon to say in this particular moment, well, I don't know how I can listen to someone who is so structurally um, racist against Philistines. And there's no wisdom in that. And he had a lot more uh, closer to home things he could have pointed out, right? Yeah, why don't you tell mom about walking in wisdom and not following off the path, dad? And there's no wisdom in that way of thinking. And also, there's a sense of urgency in our love for our kids, or not just for our kids, but for other generations. Here's a basic thing you need to remember. If you take a day off from doing this, you can be assured that evil will not. Proverbs 14, 14 through 16. Do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it. Pass on, for they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. So while you are taking a break from your pedagogical, patriarchal, matriarchal parenting duties, evil is pacing the floor looking for another opportunity to make those people that you love stumble. Another one is just to be obedient. Every phase of life has its own unique callings and opportunities and ministries. And if you've gotten to the place where you should be a teacher, it's just what you should be. <laughs> Enough with all the excuses. He's able to say, Solomon, in verse 11, I have taught you the way of wisdom to his sons. Think about that. He's able to say to his sons, I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the past of uprightness. This reminds me of Paul to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. I did not hold back. I declared to you the whole counsel of God's word. I think the day is coming when the Lord will show us all things as they are and we will see that millions of church members in my age and older in particular were massively neglectful of telling each other and others the truth. And I believe that I could turn off Fox News. I turn on, turn it off and say, I, don't, I know exactly how 
why our culture is the way it is. This is the consequence of at least two generations of Christians who refuse to tell each other the truth. This is why we are where we are. But the main motivation isn't culture wars or even loving the other person or even just wanting to do the right thing because you know like it's probably time I step up. The main motivation is to praise the Lord. There, as I said at the beginning of this, the generational transfer of godliness is, is a beautiful thing that highly exalts the Lord, and it screams against all of the uh, dubious extinction claims that have gone forth forever. That Oh, the, you know, the next generation won't believe, and the next generation won't believe, and the next generation won't believe. And God is gloriously praised when it's like, nope, they did. <laughs> nope, they did. Nope, they did. And so on and so forth. One of the main things I would really strongly encourage us as parents, patriarchs and matriarchs, to look at is to avoid what I might call Rockwellism. And that is to think of our family cohesion and family togetherness as so precious that we're, that we're willing to withhold the truth to keep it intact. If you have someone in your life that you can't tell the truth, You need to think long and hard about what the word enabling means. I'm not saying guns blazing. I'm, I'm saying spirit, wisdom, and so forth. But I am saying your family cohesiveness should not come at the expense of truth. Your family unity, your unity with your friends should not come at the expense of truth. Jesus says in Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own mother and father and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And it doesn't mean that you walk around with seething anger towards your parents. Some of you need no help in that. It simply means that your love for Jesus should be so remarkably bright, hard, and strong that in comparison, you are willing to let go of anything that would keep you from walking faithfully in the ministry God has set before you. I'll wrap up with Psalm 145. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. This table set before us is an intergenerational table. Angela and I have great joy in watching kids navigate this sign and seal from the Lord, that navigate this, figure it out. What is this about? Why does he get it and I don't? And that wine is gross and all that kind of thing. But here in a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table. And this is, a, this is a, 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 a sacrament that Jesus instituted that has gone on in perpetuity for 2,000 years. Think about this. For 2,000 years, moms and dads and children and grandparents and great-grandparents have been standing in lines or sitting in pews and receiving the wine almost always until recently, by the way, wine and bread 
and hearing the words of Jesus pronounced over this time, generation after generation after generation, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then they take the cup and they hear the same thing. You're hearing the same thing people heard 2,000 years ago. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then it says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let me pray for us and then we'll come to the table. Lord God, thank you for your beautiful, glorious word. And thank you, God, that both with the hand of blessing and the hand that shows our own sin, we can say you are faithful. You can be trusted. You are the truth. We can say that with complete authority, convinced in our own souls that that is true. And now, Lord, we gather at this table, which is really, God, the way that we know all of this. We know you because of Jesus. And we know Jesus because while we were still sinners, he died for us. So, Lord, as we approach this table, God, we just want to do so with a heart of gratitude. There is so much work to be done in this beautiful activity you've called us to of transferring your word from generation. There's so much work to be done. But as is always the case with your gospel, we start our work day with a feast. We start by saying, it is all done. You have, Lord, won the victory, and we walk in your victory now. So let us come and partake with grateful, confident hearts. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.